Welcome, this is Bill Munhausen, your host for Christian Ideas and Activism, also available as the Kiyozarks podcast. My niche is faith and religion, but that doesn't tell you the whole story because God wants us to be salt and light in every aspect of life. My mission is to seek out the truth of things. We explore government and entertainment and the family and entrepreneurship and science all through the filter of what God would want as he builds his kingdom among us. Imagine this. Jesus finds two fishermen casting their nets and says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets and follow him. Then Jesus runs into another fisherman. Let's call him John. But instead of following Jesus, John says, I believe in your ministry, Jesus, but I operate a profitable fishing business and have a life and responsibilities. I'll stay here, but I'll serve you by telling all my clients the good news. Is this John a follower of Jesus? The obvious answer is, of course not. Staying behind is pretty much the opposite of following, no matter how you spin it. We had a conversation at church about David Platt's book, Follow Me. The essential message of Follow Me is that a salvation prayer is not enough for you to be a follower of Christ. Instead, we should all, every single Christian, set aside our lives in order to know and proclaim Christ, for this is what it means to follow him. However, losing your life does not align well with the demands of our complex materialistic culture. We believe we must work full-time to make ends meet, so we are drawn to rationalize what Jesus asks us to give. Our pastor led the discussion with some good questions. Would you call yourself a follower of Jesus, Christ? Would you say that you view Jesus as Lord, Master, and Owner? Why or why not? What might hold you back from following Jesus at this point? Nobody jumped up to volunteer answers. These were not shallow questions that you could answer in a superficial way. I could sense a tension building in people's minds, certainly in mine. Of course I'm a follower of Jesus but I also had a career and family to care for at times in my life. That tension between thoughts of staying and following led someone to ask, can't we just bloom where we're planted? It was said in such a sincere, pleading way that our pastor was lured into the compassionate answer. You can be a teacher or a construction worker or a janitor, as long as you love the Lord and grow in righteousness. It was a kind answer, meant to deflect the tension among the people, but was tipped excessively toward accommodation rather than truth. Churchgoers seem to believe that they can live a self-absorbed life as long as they adhere to moral standards or feel emotionally connected to Jesus. We call ourselves followers, but we don't actually move. Plants don't make good followers. I can only tell you from my life experience the difference between being a merely a believer and being a follower of Christ. When I was a young man and a new believer, I was driven by my responsibility as a husband, father, and provider. I was absorbed with my career as the means to provide for my family, but I was also a believer. I knew that there was more to being a follower of Christ, but I only had time to be a part-time disciple. As my understanding grew, I branched out to teaching in church and other limited ministries. I likened that stage as being an apprentice, learning to do things like my master Jesus. But still I was dissatisfied until the season came when I gave up my career and preoccupation with survival and launched the Orion Center. To my way of thinking, that's when I became a true follower of Jesus. 
having taken action to increase his kingdom rather than my own. The key is that we are called to follow Jesus. In contrast, the American church's emphasis on salvation instead of Jesus' lordship gives many people in the church a different understanding. They are saved and striving to live moral lives and enjoying church life, but they have never been taught that there is something more that Jesus expects them to follow all his commands and not just the moral ones. That attitude has facilitated the rise of casual Christianity, a religious system that bears little fruit and offers little satisfaction even to casual Christians. Some even wonder whether an unfruitful believer is even truly a believer, since scripture tells us that faith without works is dead. Fortunately, nobody has to live this way, nor live in doubt. Every believer can position their lives to eventually break away from the world system and set a new course under the Lord's leading. Are you a follower of Jesus? If your answer is no, the solution is something like repentance. Change your course and purpose yourself to a new direction whose primary goal is serving Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'm quoting it here not because of the promise of salvation, but because of what the opening phrase reveals about God's heart. He loves the world. We're watching a series at Heartland Worship Center called Good or God. Its central theme is important, the difference between simply advocating good and serving the lordship of God. Nevertheless, the presenter fell a little short in session three when he tried to make a point about the Lord being jealous of our love for the world. The presenter said we can't love both God and the world, a familiar warning from the pulpit. But then he warned us to avoid legalism and gave many examples about how legalism is built around practical seeming rules to avoid worldliness. Our pastor rightly discerned the conflict in the teaching, how to avoid the world without being legalistic in avoiding worldliness. Much of the church seems conflicted about their place in the world. They sometimes equate being active in the world with operating in your own strength. As an alternative, they say to seek closer relationship with the Lord. Nevertheless, he wants us to be salt and light in the world. He wants us to disciple the nations. We seem to vacillate between two calls, the inward call to be set apart from the world and the outward call to set right the decline of the nation. We know that the culture has declined because we've been negligent, but we're uncommitted to getting involved. But there is another reality. God loves the world, and we Christians love the world. We experience pleasure and enjoyment through all that God provides for us. God is not against our enjoying nature or loving our families or seeking success in our occupations or any of the many blessings he's given us through his creation. As a matter of fact, Jesus' last instruction was to go out into the world and make disciples of the nations. He wants us to be salt and light for the world. He wants us to help him transform the world. Here, then, is the correct point. Although God loves the world, what God doesn't love, and we don't love either, is the system of the world. The spiritual meaning behind the Greek word cosmos that is translated world in those verses that warn us about the world. The world system is characterized by materialism, selfishness, the love of power, and the oppression of the weak. He doesn't want us to be seduced by that system. If we turned from his way to the world's way, or tried to accommodate both at once, that would make him jealous. One of my favorite verses about Jesus is Luke 2.52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature 
and in favor with God and man. It shows that Christ maintained the right balance of favor with God and favor with the world's people. First, he had to grow in wisdom and favor with God. He had to nurture a relationship with the Father. But Jesus was not just a holy man who sought God and God alone. He loved people and drew people to him. Because of his relationship with the Father, the Lord knew that the will of the Father was that all men be saved, and that meant establishing relationship in the world. There should be nothing confusing in this. Our call as Christ followers is to be his agents in renewing his creation and the people he wishes to save, for God so loved the world. I've been having conversations with a friend about what we in the church should be doing. Should we take our faith into the marketplace to transform the culture around us, or should we turn inward to Christ to draw closer to him? It's the age-old question of outreach versus holiness for believers. We are, after all, called to be set apart from the world, while we are simultaneously called to be salt and light in the world. There's an inevitable tension between those two callings. In the midst of one of those conversations, I was referencing Dr. Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Live?, notably the chapter titled Our Society, in which Schaeffer predicted the values of middle-class America would become the twin idols of personal peace and affluence. Back in 1977, he described these values this way. First, personal peace. I want to be left alone, that I don't care what happens to the man across the street or across the world. I want my own lifestyle undisturbed, even regardless of what that will mean for my own children and grandchildren. Secondly, affluence. Things, 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 always more things, and success is seen as the abundance of things. As I was reading Schaefer's arguments, I realized that the church has been infected by this same philosophy. And I'm not talking about prosperity teachings or any of the predictable warnings against materialism. I'm talking about the idol of spiritual affluence, illustrated by the many evangel evangelicals who talk about pressing in, seeking God's face, pursuing holiness, and perfecting their walk. A segment of church people want to shield themselves from the outside world and focus completely on the blessings of their relationship with Christ. They obviously care about their children and grandchildren, but the lure of personal peace by separating from the ungodly culture seems to offer security enough for them. They live for personal peace and spiritual affluence. What I have often observed is the church retreating from outreach and turning inward. The positive aspect of this trend is the commitment of a true relationship with the Lord, a commitment necessary for all believers. I also see in it an equally positive passion for marriage, family, and discipling the next generation. Unfortunately, the trend is accompanied also by a spirit of retreat and withdrawal from the increasing darkness of our culture. Dr. Marshall Foster asks this question. How did a nation of men who fought so bravely for liberty, their families, and private property, so passively give over these great blessings to the control and regulation of a seemingly all-powerful, out-of-control government. It appears that Christians have decided to separate themselves from mainstream society. Rather than shape the culture, they intend to keep it at arm's length. They don't want to touch its moral filth or engage with the trauma of changing its institutions. The experience of doing that seems too unholy, too carnal. Christians have the option to secure themselves in the peace and safety of the parallel society of Christian entertainment, church fellowship, and spirituality. What's wrong with riding along inside the Christian culture? It's simply not 
what the one we call Lord told us to do. Jesus' last words recorded in the Gospel of Matthew were, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. He was ordering us to subdue the creation and transform lives. Jesus himself was very much in the world as a preacher, a teacher, a healer, and one who confronted the authorities of his day. His apostle Paul traveled the known world, doing what he saw his master had done. Neither of our New Testament role models withdrew from the culture and retreated to a safe haven. They were world changers because the world needed changing. Is there really any controversy? Believers are called to do what Jesus said and model themselves after what Jesus did. We are to seek holiness for our preparation and spiritual wellness, but then go out into the world to accomplish what Christ has for us to do. A few years ago, my wife and I went on a pilgrimage to Israel. We both understood it as a God-ordained appointment and that there is something in the experience that needs to be shared. The Lord has revealed this lesson to me. All that has happened to the Jews through history to the present is a prophetic warning to us for these last days. Yad Vashem is the ultimate museum about Holocaust, the attempted extermination of the Jews by the German Nazis during World War II. The name Yad Vashem embodies the idea of remembering and learning from the past. It's derived from Isaiah 56.5, And to them will I give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name, a Yad Vashem, that shall not be cut off. To be honest, Peggy and I weren't looking forward to experiencing Yad Vashem, because our Israel tour had been gloriously positive and we didn't want to end it on such a sad note. Shortly before entering Jerusalem, we experienced our first great sadness at Masada, the mountain fortress where a remnant of the Jews made their last stand against the legions of the Roman Empire. Would Yah Vashem be another downer at the conclusion of our pilgrimage? The last day of our tour was considered a free day without a guide, so our options were limited. The tour bus would drop us at Yad Vashem, so we went. Having been to a Holocaust exhibition before, we envisioned a lot of information about gas chambers and suffering at the hands of evil Nazis. Yad Vashem is not so much about what evil men do, but about the evil that decent people allowed, which led to greater evil. Separation is very much the theme I drew from the Holocaust. Yad Vashem's historical timeline begins long before the Holocaust. You see, the Jews had settled in Germany a thousand years before the Holocaust and were fully integrated into German society. As a first-generation German-American, I can testify that it is mostly impossible to differentiate between a German Jew and a German Gentile because they are ethnically and nationally the same. It can even be said that the Jews in Germany became part of the cultural elite as doctors, bankers, artists, scientists, and educators. They were not underdogs in German society, but rather part of the establishment. Not unlike Christians have been in America. The Yad Vashem exhibits explain chronologically the changes that took place over a couple of decades that resulted in separation and persecution. It began with with cultural separation immediately after the First World War. Perhaps it was related to the people of Germany pondering their defeat and perceived humiliation by their enemies and looking for someone to blame. The Jews were just distinct enough, just different enough to be singled out for discrimination. 
It was very mild at first. Perhaps Jews weren't welcome in certain social clubs, or were discouraged from jobs in arts and media, or inhibited from expressions of faith in public. Perhaps without even questioning what was happening, German Jews began forming their own social clubs, artistic forums, newspapers, and Jewish faith-based organizations. They may even have been proud of their separation from mainstream society because they were honoring God and their ethnic identity in a more pure way by separating from the world. However, along with cultural segregation came separation from their non-Jewish friends and associations, those personal alliances who may later have supported them. The Jews came to live in Jewish communities with little personal contact with other Germans who viewed them as increasingly different from the mainstream of German society. When the Nazi socialists came into power, they erected walls around the Jewish communities to protect them from danger. But those walls were eventually used to keep the Jews from escaping. Jewish ghettos became places of suffering long before the gas chambers, where Jews made do with limited resources and few friends outside to supply aid. They starved in their decaying prisons until the Nazis finally hauled them away to their destruction. In one generation, the Jews isolated themselves in these sanctuary communities where they could easily be taken by their enemies. While the Nazi socialists were doing these things to the Jews, they were busy transforming German society in other ways. Haven't we heard the term transformation in our own time? A telling statement on one of Yad Vashem's exhibits related how the non-Jewish German population also accepted what the Nazi socialists were doing in the 1930s to transform German society. It read, Germans were satisfied with the stabilization of the political system and most accepted the abolition of democracy. In other words, the people opted for personal security over freedom. The socialists made the trains run on time, offered free health care, and reasserted national pride. Here is the great lesson God is giving the church through Yad Vashem. There are many parallels between 1930s Germany and America today. Nazi socialists replaced the democratic Weimar Republic through a largely legal process of political organization, just as modern socialists have gained control of the federal government by creating coalitions of dissatisfied voters. The Nazis demonized financial institutions and private enterprise and promised greater efficiency through government control. So in America, our socialists blame recessions on corporate greed and financial manipulation and have asserted their power over free enterprise in the name of protecting the people. The Nazi socialists marginalized the Jews similar to the way that Christian expression has been minimized through separation of church and state. Christians have settled for separate but equal institutions similar to the way black Americans in the 1950s accepted Negro baseball leagues and Negro music venues and other symbols of segregation. Like the Jews in Germany during the 1930s, Christians have allowed ourselves to be marginalized and separated from the mainstream so that the general population is no longer a support for similar ideas and values. Where once we were part of the establishment, a new elite has abandoned any zeal for God, and God's people seem anachronistic. Christians are out of touch with the elite's desire for homosexual rights, restriction of private gun ownership, rejection of the constitutional rule of law, and establishment of the state religion of humanism. 
We have embraced our marginalization by loving our called-apart status in America. The end game in all that is happening will look like the final solution the German Nazis perpetrated on the Jews. It almost certainly will be more subtle than gas chambers, but it will be just as final if we continue to cooperate. What must we do to avoid the fate of Germany's Jews? When you attend your place of worship this Sunday, think about how the church building is a place where often we pray thanks to God for the freedom to join and worship together. Then ask yourself, is freedom not available outside? The church building is our place of safety as it should be, but if we live our spiritual lives there only, the church building will become a place of separation where evildoers may overtake us one day. What we must do to avoid the fate of Germany's Jewish citizens is to live in the mainstream while also proclaiming Christ. We need to be good neighbors to all people. We must occupy places of authority in mainstream media, business, public office, education, science, and the arts. We must risk appearing worldly so we can influence our world and our friends in it. We must put ourselves in a place where we will have the sympathy of our neighbors when evil men seek to destroy us. So what does God want? I was reading in the book of Amos today, and God said this, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. As one who who attends a worshiping church, I was taken aback by the anger from the Lord. It would be easy to rationalize it away that God was angry with those apostate Jews of Amos' time. The vision God gave Amos was a people who were not so evil that we couldn't relate to them. They did many of the right religious things, singing worship songs and observing their religious rites and doing church in a Jewish context. However, there was still injustice in their land, and the people desired to fit into the surrounding culture by worshiping its idols. God was angry because they were only half-hearted servants worshiping God ceremonially, but not with the fruit of their lives. These thoughts bring me back to our present situation. Many people in the modern American church, the group politicians call evangelicals, think that loving God and expressing that love are the end-all of Christianity. But God seems to think not so much. He seems to be making the accusation through Amos that it is never enough to give lip service to God. It's never enough to make a show of worship without showing God's worth through serving his wants. What God wants is simple, maybe too simple. He wants justice and righteousness, as he records in the next verse of Amos. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like a flowing stream. If Christians are to deliver the justice that God wants flowing like a stream, we have to immerse ourselves in the processes that deliver justice. We can't just dabble in it. We must be driven to see God's wants delivered. We must resist spiritualizing justice by telling ourselves that it's only the heart God cares about when he's really clearly telling us it's the reality he cares about also. I've been participating at some time in the past in a men's ministry in our church called Knights of the 21st Century. It's a good program. It utilizes the imagery of the knight as a symbol of fine character and nobility of purpose. The Knights program disciples men over the course of five years to become men of integrity. But recently I've asked the question, 
To what purpose? It reminds me of the sport of bodybuilding. The bodybuilder goes to the gym every day to work using dead weights and machines to tone the body and build muscle mass. The amount of work the bodybuilder performs is admirable, but it's only an end to sculpt the perfect body. The work doesn't build railroads or rockets to the moon or newer highways or any other product that impacts the bodybuilder's community. The work doesn't produce any fruit beyond the perfection of self. And so a knight who improves himself internally and hangs out with his buds around the round table can never be a true knight until he goes out on a mission to do what knights once did, to champion right in an unrighteous world on behalf of his sovereign king. Here are just a couple of examples of how God has spoken his want beyond Amos. He caused Micah to write in Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. He spoke through his son Jesus Christ, as recorded in Matthew 22, 37-39, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. It's hard to imagine loving your neighbor as you love yourself without taking action to make the world more just on your neighbor's behalf. Jesus clarified this when he was asked, who is your neighbor? In response, he told a story about a Samaritan helping a man who had been accosted by robbers. The Samaritan was a knight, not just in thought or spiritual belief, but in action. At this point, I must acknowledge that my brothers in Christ will be skeptical. We've been conditioned to believe that getting involved in the world is, quote, of the flesh. One Christian website opined, all our service for God must flow from those two commands to love, or it is not real service, it is fleshly effort. And he quotes Paul writing in Romans 8.8 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Yes, it is possible for that hypothetical someone to pursue works in place of following Christ, but I would contend it is not possible for those of us who are in Christ. Christ in us and the Holy Spirit indwelling us overwhelms our ability to stand against his wants. Our works are his works, so we must not be afraid of being doers of the word. We must reject our reservations about works because it has allowed ungodly forces a greater of the share of the world than they deserve. Our pastor spoke with us about recent events in Georgia where the governor vetoed legislation to protect pastors who chose not to officiate in same-sex weddings. The governor seems to have yielded to pressure from various corporations which threatened to withdraw their business in Georgia if the state passed a law that discriminated against homosexuals. It's another example of attacks against religious freedom and individual conscience. Everyone knows it is the inaction of Christians that has brought us to this place. Our unwillingness to obey God's call for justice has brought us to the point where justice is denied to ourselves, another lesson we can learn through Amos. And so let us set aside our reluctance to be activists in our lost world. Let us remember what Jesus said as recorded in Matthew 12:50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus calls us to be doers. He wants us to permeate the culture with the Father's will so that his kingdom on earth can thrive. The king wants to send his knights on a mission to right injustice. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, go out and do good. 